0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 418, which is Philip Wolf, who is executive in charge of Corporate Strategies over at DNEG. DNEG, of course, the well-renowned and respected visual effects company, and he's a really cool guy to talk to Philip. I actually met Philip at uh, RTS, which is part of the Real-Time Society, and we were able to uh, connect there, and I saw him. Uh, give a talk and I was really inspired I said I gotta have this guy on the podcast and it was really fun to connect with him there and we talk a little bit about RTS as well so you guys will know more about what what that is Uh, but learn a little bit about his past you know uh, started off in Germany he actually studied producing over at Film Academy which is pretty amazing uh, that they teach that especially producing in animation really cool that it was done he did some work over at PIXO did some stuff on Game of Thrones which was kind of cool Um, and uh, currently he's over at Dean Egg and has done a bunch of projects there and then sort of moved into this new position uh, where he's actually looking at development, de- egg is looking at developing their own IP, which I also thought was interesting. Uh, he's got a lot of different interests, that, uh, th- and we cover a lot of them. We sort of run the gamut on this podcast. Uh, he talks a lot about his interest in uh, diversity in the workplace, uh, which I think is really cool, and that's an initiative he's also putting forth as part of uh, RTS. Uh, and uh, talk a lot about virtual production. Uh, he's really big into that, and uh, really cool to hear, hear his takes on that. Uh, talk about AI, a subject that, as you know, is very important right now, and we really want to get everyone's take on where they think that's going to affect them. And then finally, uh, we talk about uh, you know Web3, which I think was interesting. That was a lot of cool stuff that he has, to, especially in the area of standards in Web3. Um, and digital twins is something that was really cool to talk to him about. So very excited uh, to see that. Okay, we've got uh, one product announcement, so V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max Update 1. I'm not going to go into the details of that because I've been telling you about it for the last several weeks but It's really cool. Lots of great updates and definitely go check it out. If you want to know more about that, just go to chaos.com and look for the link at the top of the page and you'll see V-Ray 6 for 3S Max Update 1 and all the details there. And if you're going to ask when is it coming for my product, like Maya or Houdini or SketchUp or whatever, don't worry. They will be going down the line to all the products as we always do. Okay, we've got one event going on right now. You can check these all out at chaos.com slash event. Uh, Coming up April uh, 4th, through 5th um, is in Paris, France, and we'll be at BIM World Paris. So if you're interested in the BIM World, go check us out there. We would love to see you. Again, that is April 4th through 5th uh, in in Paris. Uh, Okay. And if you guys want to know more about the podcast, yeah, I do, of course, I don't have Kristen anymore to help me with these intros. If you guys listened last week, you'll know that she has uh, moved to a different part of the company and she's no longer be able to help me with the podcast. But if you guys want to know more about the podcast, you can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And of course, if you want to watch this podcast on YouTube, which I always recommend because it's a lot of fun to see it, popular, popular now on podcasts, by the way, is video podcast, uh, YouTube.com. Slash chaosgroupTV. We post all of our podcasts on there as well. And if you have any other suggestions of people or things that you'd like to hear, uh please of course come and reach out to us, labs at chaos.com. We'd love to hear from you there. That's the way the best way to reach us. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. Uh, but for now, please enjoy episode number four hundred and eighteen. I'm with Philip Wolf. Welcome to another CG Garage where the Chaos Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range We know that ambient occlusion is passé Global illumination won't
1: lead you astray And while image-based lighting is
0: really swell you need to make sure everything has for now. I was very interested in talking to you because we were both we both members of the Real Time Society with Jean Michel, and I heard uh, you gave some really some very interesting talks uh, on on there and gave some really interesting points. But I think it'd be great to sort of think about what your background is uh, and how you ended up getting into the film industry. I mean, like you said, I think we met at FMX, so we obviously have some German background going on. But let's let, where 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 does it all start? What 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 got you interested in the film industry and doing what you do? Oh, uh,
1: it's everything but a straight line. It wasn't that <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, movies! I want to work in movies. It's a, it's a thing I imagine most. No, it actually it it started with me being interested in a very diverse field of things. So from software development, web design, to system integration, system engineering, to automotive engineering, journalism, and then from journalism into reality TV. Believe it or not, I worked on Big Brother. Uh, really? And yes. Um, <laughs> Big
0: Brother in Germany?
1: Big Brother in Germany, yes. Right. Germany nice. was, I think, actually the first, first ones to ever um, green light Big Brother.
0: I think, you, yeah, that sounds about right.
1: <laughs> and, um, and then a good friend of mine at, the, at those days, ages ago, was like, hey, I think you're actually better off in film and visual effects because this is what your passion seems to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, study, I started studying at the Film Academy in, in Baden-Württemberg in Ludwigsburg mm-hmm. and studied uh, the, a very, very new field of study, which was uh, animation visual effects producing. And while studying, Pixel Mondo um, gave me the opportunity to work on a couple of, of German feature films. And uh, while still studying, the opportunity to work on the second season of Game of Thrones, where we introduced lovely things like the castle, the dragon, the White Walker. So yep. it was, was a really fun time. And um, I haven't looked back. I've been in film ever since, have been working in visual effects for yeah, last thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years or so, and now moved in a more um, entertainment industry strategy role at DNEC, where I'm looking at what the future has to hold.
0: Yeah, well, we're definitely going to get into the future because I think the future is uh, exploding right now. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I'm interested uh, specifically why you sort of got into producing. What got you interested in the produ- uh, producing side of things?
1: Huh. Very good question. It's um, I was actually on the verge of am I, am I, do I want to be an artist or do I want to be a producer? Do I want to manage people who create or do I want to create? And then I realized that there's so many people who are so much better at creating than me that I think it's better to enable them. And um, at some point in my life, I I set myself to. A higher goal because I'm I'm a I'm a person who's very driven by goals and my higher goal is to enable people to do what they love and this is being in the theater and being uh, brought away from their day to day to I'm sitting in front of a computer in front of a piece of paper on a set creating so I was like okay I want to enable those people I want to enable people to tell stories I want to enable people to tell meaningful stories and uh, this by in the last couple of years has shifted into i want to tell meaningful stories as well so it's 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 really important for me to to give people this opportunity give people the platform
0: but do you think i mean i mean based on what you're saying the the, the role of producer has a huge part of the creative process right and so you're not you're not just sort of letting everyone else be creative you're sort of orchestrating it in a lot of ways am i correct
1: yes so you, you you orchestrate obviously a lot, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's sometimes it's about about um, creating opportunity. Sometimes it's about restricting opportunity. Sometimes it's about um, understanding what might need to happen next for uh, the creative people to be able to actually excel in what they're doing sometimes it's also uh helping to push push it forward and yes i'm i'm uh i'm usually heavily invested and involved in what what something looks like what something should feel like what um i'm working on my own scripts and working with with writers to 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 get own stories told so i'm 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 certainly creative and i want to tell creative stories um, but at the end, it's again, it's uh, if I'm working with a writer, for example, is is I have a vision of what I want to tell, but I'm missing the craft to tell that story. And before I'm saying, oh, okay, let's just write, um, I'm engaging someone who I know actually knows how to write, actually knows how to per, um, how to translate my thinking into something else. And this is the same when, when I was doing uh, visual effects producing for, for companies. It's I have, a, I have a director with a vision. I have a mm-hmm. visual effects supervisor on production side with a vision. I have a, produc- a, a visual effects supervisor and vendor side with a vision. So my job is to get the director's vision on screen. So helping my visual effects supervisor on the vendor side, having the production supervisor to, uh, to create that vision, which ultimately helps feed into, into the movie and tell the story, is my utmost goal. And if it's a creative thing I need to say, I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm a producer. My job is to get stuff done. My job is to... Uh, it's basically, imagine it. You're, you're in an undeveloped piece of land. Your job is to figure out where to put the tracks put the train on the tracks, put the driver in the train and then let the train drive. And then you as a producer, you're kind of always putting the tracks in front of the train and you really, really hope the train doesn't catch up before you have the tracks down. And, um, and that's your job. And sometimes you're going off the beaten path. Sometimes you're, you're staying on the beaten path. Sometimes the tracks are just not there. Um, But, but it's, it's really about figuring it out. And this is something I personally find so energizing because it's it's kind of making the impossible possible, even though the impossible is not really impossible. If that makes sense.
0: Okay. <laughs> sure. 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 Yeah, I find it fascinating. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that you know people are doing in 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 that in that field. And uh, I I I've always been interested in producers. Uh, I've I was a you know I was working as an artist for many years, but I've also thought the people that figure out how to enable. The creative process to take place as smoothly as possible, uh, giving people as much room as they need to be creative, but also making sure that there is a track in front of them. As <laughs> you said, is also kind of a fascinating thing. Okay, so you were at, you were at Pixumuna for a while. Did you worked on Did you worked on the Game of Thrones? Did you know Reiner Gombush at all? Yes, I did.
1: <laughs> I worked with him on on that second season of Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, yeah. He sat next to me at a uh, long time ago and at oh. DD when we were <laughs> both on the modeling team. Many many years ago, uh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, Game of Thrones was a big deal. It was a lot. It was a really interesting show, and I'm sure it must have had an impact on on your thoughts about the about the visual effects. What were some of your thoughts? What were you thinking back then about what, you know where visual effects was going to go, especially in in hmm. things like you know uh, uh, episodic work.
1: Hmm. I would say Game of Thrones was definitely one of those shows which pushed episodic work to a new level to a very new level of how much visual effects is in an episode i was associate producer on the project so i did not manage the overall production uh but it it's it was just a sheer complexity of effects the i don't remember what it was called i think all the game of thrones fans are gonna hate me for that but i think it was the battle at blackwater bay or something
0: oh yeah 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 was it actually the Battle of Blackwater. Yeah, it was with the uh, with the, 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 the hellfire, the, the green, green f-
1: explosions. Yeah, the hellfire. Yeah, utterly complex sequence, utterly mm-hmm. amazing, and um, and and it was still a time of HBO, right? It was still a time of broadcast. It was still a time mm-hmm. of okay, uh, this is when we broadcast the episode, so mm-hmm. it better be done by then. <laughs> right, and and uh, the broadcast started to catch up with our deliverable. So it was it, it was a it was a, a, a scary feast and yeah, maybe not yeah I think at that time scary yeah. these days I wouldn't say scary anymore these days I would say okay it's a challenge to get the creativity done at that point sure it's yeah
0: but yeah it was interesting because you're right it was it was you know you weren't seeing the big episodic stuff that you see on streaming networks now <sighs> that you yeah but back then this was very new and this was like oh my god this is might as well be a feature film right.
1: Yeah, yeah it's it it was
0: something something
1: else if i if if you look at i don't know D-Neck, i uh had the the pleasure to work on altered carbon season 2 this uh-huh. sci-fi sci-fi world where we had to create this whole world this whole city i forgot what it was called um where we had to to basically build this whole world this was in its scope i would argue more than than what game of thrones season 2 was sure. but it it and and you're seeing this more and more. If you look at Foundation, for example, this is mm-hmm. it's, it's it's massive. It's a massive world, and it's it's still a TV show. And I think, right. uh, especially due to the um, influx of streamers coming coming into the in, into the game, TV and film is more and more mixing. It's um, yeah. there's not really a distinction anymore.
0: Sure, absolutely. No, I know exactly what you mean, uh, and I've always been surprised by that. And. We'll get into that a little bit more. So let's talk about your time over at uh, at uh, frames. Uh, uh, not sorry, at DNEG. Uh, when you w- w- what what made that transition happen? And and obviously you have a, a, a much more strategic and important role over at DNEG now. So how did that happen? And tell us a little bit more about that 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 growth there. It's.
1: I want to say about. Four years ago or something, I I joined DNEC, um as a as a visual effects producer, executive producing a couple of projects, so basically senior visual effects producer, overseeing um, a couple of other producers, working on movies like Togo, Men in Black. I don't remember what the title was, but um, and producing producing Altered Carbon season two, actively sure. actively. And I, I moved more and more into the executive producing role. But uh, something, something I kind of, I don't know why, but I always ended up with, with projects which are either on a very challenging timeline or with a high complexity in its creation. And I moved more into executive producing and oversaw projects happening within uh, the Montreal facility or the Montreal-led uh, projects. And mm-hmm. I was working uh, heavily with new business to set up new projects. So, for example, when Dune came in, I was I was a, a part in setting up this production uh, to get it into shoot, and then handed it over to uh, the producing team and the supervision team, who ended up winning an Academy Award for it. Yay! Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, but but I always had had this this was always kind of close to the ground. So. I produced Battle at Lake Zhangjin, which was uh, China's highest-grossing uh, movie, and I think it's gonna stay for a while because it's a really highly-grossing movie. And okay. uh, we did the visual effects for that, and it was such a compressed timeline. It was so compressed, and it was so many shots, and it was so. I want to say we had something like one and a half thousand artists working on this project to get it done. It was wow. it was really really complex. I had a I had a, a, I had producers um i had people who we made producers in the main, in the same t- in the same time during the project cuz they just were doing such an outstanding job um and then we get the, got this movie done so this was when i was more uh, I was still executive producing a couple of other shows but focusing on a singular project so it was always kind of like this executive producing three four projects setting up a couple of projects but focusing on one uh, the last project I've done uh, for d together uh, with my colleague, Cassius Via- Aves. uh he's a visual mm-hmm. effects producer at d is Glass Onion Knives Out Mystery for Ryan Johnson. Nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Really, really cool movie if you've watched it. It's on Netflix. Yeah. And, um, and it, it it's one of those movies you don't even see that there are visual effects in it. And right. it was over 500 shots of visual effects. Yeah. Go try spot them. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's it that that was my last movie as actively in visual effects, and then I transitioned into or fully transitioned into the role I'm in right now, which is called Executive in Charge Corporate Strategy, which is basically looking at our content production line and looking at uh, setting up an interactive um, vertical for the business. So how can we utilize what we've learned in over twenty years of visual storytelling in visual effects? into a world of interactive.
0: So tell us more about that, if you can. What is, what is, what is the goal here? What are you trying to create that's interactive?
1: The, the goal is to uh, give our tool sets and our knowledge to uh, people who haven't been exposed to that. So you see okay. more and more of a, of a, of, of a coming together of, of games and film. You are see more and more game technology being used in film. You see sure. more and more filmic narrative um, storytelling in games, and um, we we believe that we have a very unique point of view for that because we have been working with uh, we have been fortunate enough to work with the the biggest filmmakers in the world to to create and craft those visual stories and bringing this into the world of games, bringing this uh, into the world of interactive storytelling, non-linear storytelling. I think is a very unique opportunity for us at the moment, and. We're, we're fully embracing it. And at the same time, we're also looking at um, our own content. How can, we, how can we not just be a service provider, but how can we build meaningful partnerships with our long-term partners to, to work on things together? How can, we, how can we help elevate a product to an extent that um, all parties are happy with it?
0: Now what's happened, what's changed a lot because a lot of studios, a lot of visual effects studios have all tried to create their own content, create their own feature animation, create their own features, and it's always been a challenge. And it's always been a challenge because then you end up competing with your with your clients, right? So those are, those were all the things. What what's changed recently that you think is going to make that strategy a little bit different today? Hmm. I think what has changed and it's a it's a tricky
1: one to answer. I think because it's hard to pinpoint. I think what has changed is um we've we've gone through so much content needing to be produced that I think there's a little bit more of an of an open mind to having conversations coming from other directions. Mm. Um it's Yeah, I think I think it's it's really we need content to to exist, and we need content to be created. But there's only so much content which can be created. And I think having an, an another opportunity for content to be created, or another avenue for content to be created, I think it's 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 a it's an opportunity right now. When you were saying the 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 studios who tried it before, and uh, some succeeded, some did. Some some failed, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, but if if you look at the content which came out of visual effects or animation houses before, which was sole IP, um, it's it it might have just not been the right timing for
0: it. Do you think? Do you think you know? Because we mentioned this earlier with the idea of streaming that you know, be in the quote unquote old days before streaming, you only had like six studios that controlled all of hollywood right and so and there was only so many screens that you could show movies on theaters so but nowadays with streaming there is a uh, infinite screens that you could show content on and so and there's more studios than there's ever been right because that's always everyone's sort of popping up and becoming a studio do you think that that's some of the things that have changed as well
1: yeah that definitely is because the demand for content is higher than ever Sure. So it's you. You need more and more content, and it's be it the Netflix, Amazon's, Apple, Hulu, Peacock. I don't even know all of them these days. Crave in yeah. Canada. They all need content, and they all sure. need fresh content. They all need content to to engage uh, to engage their their memberships, their subscribers, and to keep their subscribers alive. So it's always about fresh content.
0: Yeah, do you think it went? There's a lot of, you know, I remember, you know, last year or, you know, early 2022, um, the, the seemed to me that the visual effects industry was completely overwhelmed. It was just way too much work. <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff going on. I know, from you know, based on some of the things that happened, production has slowed down. But it seems that maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing considering how overwhelming people were. Uh, the work was. Do you think that's the case yourself?
1: I would definitely say there was uh, a lot of work being produced for the amount of people we have in our industry. I I think um, that we have untapped pools of talent we haven't looked at. And this goes all into uh, the work I'm doing around equity, diversity, and inclusion. I think we have pools of of talent uh, around the world we haven't even looked at and we need to start looking at to help mitigate those issues that we don't have enough workforce to actually um uh, keep the demand up or keep the keep the supply up for the demand cuz it's especially the time you were mentioning there was such a high demand every project wanted to get done at the same time every 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 studio had i don't know how many projects and there were just not enough people to do the work
0: sure do you think that the pandemic has helped sort of alleviate some of that because I've heard mixed feelings about this over the last few years, but the fact that people can work from home, it's easier to hire people from anywhere in the globe than theoretically speaking right uh you know one of the reasons I left the visual effects industry is I just didn't want to move around from tax subsidy to tax subsidy, and I know that that was sort of uh you know an issue for me. Um, and but at the same time now I see a lot of people are being hired and they work in the middle of Idaho or they may you know maybe they work in Portugal and doesn't really matter where they live. Do you, has that sort of helped your idea of diversity uh, in in your talent pool?
1: I think it's a it's an enabler. Um, I think we still have a long way to go in in equity diversity and inclusion to be really. A a workforce which is represented, which has representation in every field. Um, But I I don't know. the The pandemic is is the pandemic has helped no one. It opened up remote workforce. Sure. Remote work for visual effects was unthinkable. Every time it was mentioned somewhere, it was immediately gone. Because yeah. we can't do this. Except cause when it had
0: to happen. Then exactly it when it
1: happened. happened. <laughs> and then it suddenly happened within two weeks. And this yeah. is something where I'm, I'm still awestruck from our IT team. I mean, we moved yep. pretty much the whole company at this point, I want to say 7,500 people to remote work in, within two weeks. That's mind-blowing. How many people? I think 7,000? at that time something like 7,000 people to remote work. Oh, my goodness. Work. It's insane. It's, it's just, I, I don't know how they did it. And um, if I would wear a hat, I would take it off. It's yeah. it's it's really mind-blowing how how our IT team did. and that's not just the IT team at DNEC. that's the IT teams uh for for all the visual effects vendors around the world. They pulled yeah. off a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think they get enough credit for that.
0: Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I'm surprised I mean beyond the visual effects industry I was just surprised that the internet didn't collapse like the entire <laughs>
1: fair point
0: fair <laughs> point <laughs>
1: It's If you look at the internet, it's kind of still what it was when it was uh, created. Right. It's not really anything new.
0: Somehow sure, more, people more just wires. managed to stay at home and <laughs> it, was a, it seemed to work. Yeah. Um, and all
1: the Netflix on top of it, all the streaming on top of it, and we're not streaming mm-hmm. in HD anymore or SD, good old Remote days. Remote
0: schooling. Uh-huh. <laughs> Every, everything <laughs> internet,
1: Bam. And it yeah.
0: worked. Still works. Yeah, I had to upgrade my 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 Wi-Fi router.
1: <laughs> same. I <laughs> yeah. I bought a small business setup at home to to yeah, make exactly. sure that my wife and I can both work remotely and uh, we can both have video calls at the same time. While she's using a remote desktop connection, I sure. upload files and stuff. And yeah, awesome.
0: Now, you did, uh, you, you've did. You actually done uh, a bunch of work. You're, you're part of the Real-Time Society, as I mentioned before, uh, and you and I connected uh, on that forum as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what are some of your interests in the Real-Time Society because we obviously, one of the things that's nice about it is there's lots of different special interest groups that are involved. So which ones are the ones that you're involved with in that group?
1: So I'm, I'm involved in the Virtual Production Special Interest Group And I'm involved in the EDI, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Special Interest Group, both of which I'm the co-chair of. And what draws me to RTS is really the opportunity it gives. Because when we're talking about media and entertainment, it's always, oh, yeah, games, animation, visual effects, film, uh, TV, whatever. But... RTS actually opens up this pool to architecture, medicine, uh, point of sales, automotive, um, I'm forgetting half of them, uh, fashion, Mm -hmm. engineering. So it really gives the opportunity to to bring all of this to a table and and learn from all of this. So within the virtual production special interest groups, our our interest is virtual production, is media entertainment virtual production. Um, right. Sure, metaverse virtual production becomes more and more a question. Uh, digital fashion and virtual production becomes more and more more more, and more a joint thing. Um, but what I what I really really think is unique about RTS is this, this multiple industries coming together using one technology. And this is something why 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 I was so interested in having this uh, EDI special interest group is because we can actually learn from all of those industries. Maybe, this, sure. maybe architecture has done something different than automotive, than uh, film, and we have learned something different. So we're, we're uh, starting to work on a white paper to, to figure out at which stage of EDI development, I don't know how to other, otherwise call it, are we in which industry? And then with this white paper, create a level playing field so every industry can learn from each other. So we get an idea of this works there, this doesn't work. This is something uh, this industry is really good at. This is something there, and 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 learn from each other. And and this is this is something which I truly value about RTS. I also got involved there as a counselor. So I'm working mm-hmm. very closely with John Michel um, to to help elevate this uh, not only real time conference, the real time society, the real time economic summit, which is coming up in uh, in mm-hmm. May. It's it's really about uh, creating this platform for everyone to learn from each other.
0: Absolutely, and it's very interesting that you say that because there's actually very similar things that interest me in RTS. You know, as Chaos uh, itself, we we have many different customers in different areas. You know, architecture, automotive, same thing, right? Same exact thing. Uh, and um, the the thing that I think is really cool about RTS is that finally I can get all of our customers. In the same room, <laughs> yeah, and they can actually talk to each other, because I do know the problems that the architects are dealing with and the problems that the visual effects people are dealing with, but they don't know each other, but if they're in the, a second say, "Oh, you should meet this person," you know and so mm. suddenly they're suddenly they're they're ta- they're tacking the same thing, and from an efficiency point of view, if we can solve one problem instead of two problems, it's much better. <laughs>
1: absolutely I'm yeah. all for that
0: for sure. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about virtual production. Obviously, uh, you you uh, you probably you know Steve Griffith, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm I yes. Steve and I worked together for a long time. I've always been a great fan of his. I think he's extremely talented and very enthusiastic. But tell me a little bit about what DNEG is doing in the, in the area of, of virtual production.
1: Oh, funny enough Steve Griffiths would likely be the better person to talk about this cuz he's he, our EP
0: for virtual production. He's been on the podcast actually before he was part of DNEG. <laughs> Wonderful. But I could sh- have, I should have him back on.
1: <laughs> Great guy. Now he's he's our EP for virtual production. Yeah. Um what DNEG is doing virtual production we 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 are as as everywhere we're pushing the status quo. We want to make sure that uh, we have the the best tool sets for filmmakers to tell their stories. Um we we are one of the things we're doing is we are pushing heavily into education for virtual production, because it's important that the filmmakers actually understand uh, this new tool. And fairly honestly, it's not as of a new tool, it's just an evolutionary step of tools we've already used before. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's really something something special. So, for example, we attended the Produce By conference uh, last year, which is done by the Producers Guild of America, and we did a, we did a session on virtual production for independent filmmakers. Because virtual production does not need to be expensive. Virtual production can be tailored to your needs, can be tailored to your story. And actually, even more interesting, we're starting the conversations about how can you tailor your story to virtual production? Because if you write for virtual production, you might actually be able to uh, find a lot of effic- efficiencies in in shooting your movie or f- shooting your script.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And now, obviously, you know this. This, uh, as you mentioned, this is not necessarily a new technology. People have things called rear projections for the last hundred years, uh, but uh, but we've we've evolved this, as you mentioned, and we've had some very interesting things to do. And and obviously, uh, shows like The Mandalorian really sort of brought light to the situation. Um, during the pandemic, I think a lot of people just saw this as a magic bullet that was going to solve all their problems. And people who weren't necessarily in visual effects and trying to deal, shoot a film under these restrictions, I think a friend of mine said, why don't we just Mandalorian it was the quote that they used. <laughs> and they were like, oh, that's not how you solve it. How do you deal with that where people are like, they just want to Mandalorian everything and they don't know, how, like you said, how to – use this tool to its, for its efficiency and what it can do? So the, the thing is,
1: it's, it's, it's first we have to separate and uh, individualize parts of virtual production. So sure. you have your previous, you have your... What, what we tend to call virtual production these days is in-camera visual effects on an LED volume. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you have using LED lighting... Um, where you just use the LED volume or part of an LED uh, flying wall to, to light your actors or, or the scene. Um, you have post-vis, you have uh, tech-vis, all things which have been around for a long, long, long time. And when you have people are like, oh, yeah, can we just do virtual production? Yeah, sure. What's your budget? Oh, yeah, <laughs> we don't have an extra budget. So uh, I've I've done my fair share of comparison budgets looking at, okay, I have a physical budget versus a virtual production budget. How does it add up? Virtual production always adds complexity to your project. It doesn't reduce. It always adds. But there are certain elements where you create offsets. And those certain elements where you create offsets are ultimately the things which, which might save you something. So, for example, with virtual production, I can change my location from Beijing to uh, San Francisco in a click of a button. Uh, Otherwise, this is a two-day trip uh, with time zone. You're likely talking three, four days out of your schedule. So click of a button versus three, four days. I'll take the click of the button. But then the question is also, what's the scene I'm, I'm, I'm shooting? So you 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 need to always assess it uh, on a case-by-case basis. And uh, talking to producers, they usually don't like when you're saying, it depends, it depends, it depends, it depends, it mm-hmm. depends, because it always depends. It always depends right. on what you're trying to achieve. It always depends of what you're trying to do. If you, for example, want to put a, a child on a motorcycle, this is something utterly dangerous for the child, hard to ensure, ignoring the dangerous, right, hard to ensure. And whatsoever, so if you have a motion base or, or just a, a strapped in motorcycle in a virtual production volume, all of those safety issues are gone. Right. So this is where virtual production is amazing. Uh, right. Car processing, I mean, TV car processing happens in every freaking TV show, every multi-camera TV show, every show where you see a car. It's usually a backdrop or a green screen or something. Put it in an LED volume, you're done. And it looks... Right. Really real.
0: Yeah. What about all these new departments that have to be built, and that have people have to know learn about, like virtual art departments and all those other things?
1: Yeah, it's it's. Um, if if you introduce new techniques or new tools, you need to introduce uh, the people who maintain it. So right. when when you build a set on on your stage, you need to have your art department. You need to have your set dresses, and the same way you need this in a digital world. And uh, the thing is, we had them before. They were just placed in visual effects. And uh, now they moved forward. But to be clearer with the people working on set, it became virtual art department. Because people on set understand what art department is. Because it's something we've been working with for, I don't know, film is 100, wait, it's not 125 years anymore. It's now 130, 140 years? Yeah. 50? Yeah. Oh, Wow getting older by the minute, um like everyone. And so it's 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 finding things which are not alienating. It's finding sure. things which helps everyone else to embrace uh this shift into into a digital age.
0: Right. Um I find it fascinating, you know, you know we always used to complain about people that would say fix it in post and and the, that that old saying. As someone who's been a producer and you know the cost involved in the fix it in post statement, uh, do you feel, first of all, has virtual, has, has in-camera visual effects specifically uh, forced filmmakers to actually have to make a decision at that time and in, in fact making this system more efficient? Or are they still trying to kick the can down the road as much as possible?
1: Hmm i mean fix it in post happened through something right they took decisions uh to build their sets and then decided to fix it in post because they were like "Mm, yeah maybe it wasn't the right decision so i think nothing has changed there
0: okay okay I mean, I was hoping that filmmakers. I mean, one of the things that I think it must have been very frustrating. I used to say this in the early, you know, a couple of years ago, in the early days of all of this, is that it's very frustrating for filmmakers, and they actually had a big backlash against the visual effects industry. I call it the "the life of pie" days, when you know they'd be shooting in a giant blue or green volume, and they have no idea what's going to happen, and they just hand it over to someone, say, "Good luck. We'll see you in nine months," and then suddenly they finally get to see what was only in their head. Um, and that must have been very frustrating to filmmakers, which is probably why, you know, there was such a backlash against, the comput- uh, against visual effects and CGI. But do you think that now suddenly when they can see it on the set, that suddenly they've regained some interest in terms of what visual effects actually is and what it can do, and computer graphics more specifically?
1: I think it, it, it very much helps. It does not only help the directors and the other filmmakers, it helps the actors uh, a huge deal than standing in a in a blue screen set. It just right. imagine standing in a blue screen set a whole day, how your vision yeah. changes just due to this because you just see blue. Um, so yep. it, it definitely helps the filmmaking process. It definitely helps to uh, bring people into into those worlds, even if they're non-existent worlds, that they they see oh i'm suddenly standing on this on this uh non-existent planet in this non-existing world i'm suddenly sure. in a medieval time okay medieval yeah. time is something we were able to do before and for a uh, distant world we just uh, drove to arizona but um it's 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 really it, it it really helps and then utilizing tools in virtual production like SimulCam, where the dp and the director actually see part of the of the foreground object of the other objects which would live in the scene. Or see if a, if your actor interacts with a creature on screen, but this creature doesn't exist. So you can actually frame your camera based on the creature you're seeing. So that's that. those two sets definitely help tremendously to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, I do remember actually, uh, you may have worked. Did you work on Oblivion at all? Uh, part of I, I,
1: I worked past it. I did not okay. actively work on it.
0: Okay, because I remember when I was working, at Oblivion, just for people to know, was the work was split between Pixamundo and and Digital Domain, mainly for those uh, for that film. Uh, but I do remember talking to Tom and him saying that, you know, because they did, they did these big projections of all the outsides and stuff like that, he said it was the most surreal and beautiful experience. He'd been so used to being on this green screen and blue screen sets that to him, it was like he felt way... Better about being able to act within that environment. So it stuck with me. And I think I always will remember uh, that that's something that's important to, for, I can imagine, as actors to have something to help them beyond their imagination. <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. And Oblivion was 2012,
0: 13? T- uh, 2010. Uh, it was going to be 10, 10? 11, 11 yeah. or so. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: it was a while ago. It was, I think, 8K, 8K projections,
0: rear projections. They were well, fairly front big. projectors, front. I believe. Yes, and there was sc- several screens and then multiple projectors. And I, from what I remember, you guys shot all the footage, Pixamundo specifically is what I mean, uh, shot all the footage of those skies at the top of the mountain uh, of the big island in Hawaii.
1: Oh, right, 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 right. Uh, Yeah, a long time ago. And like I said, I I walked past the project. It was was also handled in Stuttgart. I just remember fighting for Render Farm.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there was a lot of processing because there was a huge amount of footage (laughs) that was being done. Different loops, different skies, you know, so bright skies and sunset skies. And uh, yeah, it was quite, quite spectacular um okay well that's that's fascinating i'm i'm very i'm always curious about uh, uh in camera vfx uh i myself, am myself i'm actually been uh as a lot of people my listeners know i've been working on in camera vfx uh, uh ideas in terms of the r&d side of things which i've been talking to steve with so that's all good so. <laughs> so uh but i'm curious also now obviously because of your involvement in strategy and thinking it's you know it seems to me that you're you have a lot of ways of looking at the very big picture and not the sort of the small, how to solve small problems. You're kind of looking at a big picture idea of what, where, where things are going to go. What are your thoughts from, from that perspective, from someone in, in, in your position, on how a lot of these new tools, specifically AI tools, are going to affect how we do our work and the kind of work that's available to us? I think
1: it will enable something which in manufacturing and engineering and uh, is happening already all, ti- all the time, is rapid prototyping. We will be okay. able to rapid prototype. It's, it's, um, just imagine you're feeding a script into an AI, and it gives you yep. a previous. Doesn't mean it's the right. film you want to shoot. Doesn't mean it's anything you want to do with it. But it removes the blank page it removes yeah. er, it removes the struggle of the first line you draw and like yeah no i really don't like it that way i really want to be something else i think there's um i mean if we're we're looking at the news right now what's happening with bing's ai what's happening with chat gpt it's i always say it's between uh utterly exciting and terrifying <laughs> um and and but but I think it becomes a tool set, and I think we, we need to figure out how to implement this tool set. So if if you look, for example, what NVIDIA is doing um, with their – I forgot what it's called. Um, the, it's, it's basically a tool where I can draw and I can't draw. I can draw oh, right. and it builds me a, a matte painting. Right. It's good enough for a lot of things. Sure. It helps us to be quick. It helps us to iterate quickly. It helps us to quickly come up with ideas. It's sure. it's maybe even the new form of thumbnailing. Right. It's just a quick sketch, and this is what we use AI for. Um, looking at virtual production technology, like like said earlier, it's it's when when you utilize it uh, for for the smaller projects where it actually becomes. A process of I'm in a kitchen, I'm in a living room, I'm in a bedroom, I'm uh, on a street, I'm there, and everything it just becomes is kind of like a stage play. So I'm putting props in, and my background just changes. Then um, I'm starting to be utterly efficient. I don't I don't need to to put myself in a position where I shoot three pages a day. Maybe I shoot five, seven, eight, ten pages a day for my independent project, sure. and. And and this helps me to actually get it done. It actually helps me to tell stories which I wasn't able to tell before because um, technology just helps it. The thing for that, what is important, is studios which are available. So we're seeing um, VP volumes pop up left, right, and center right now. I think that's great. Sure. It will ultimately help uh, the small ones to tell their stories. Do you think there's too many volumes? <laughs> I don't know. It right. depends on how much LED panels uh, one of the companies can produce. But it's okay. why not? It's the more volumes, the more opportunities for people to tell their stories. Is it yeah. a is it a hundred percent viable business model all the time? Um, if it's busy, yes, cool, great. If you if you can get it into your, in in your depreciation period, then all good.
0: Yeah, absolutely getting back to to virtual production sorry uh some of the AI tools that are being done at this point um there's a lot of people, especially younger people in the industry or people who just come out of school who spent a huge amount of time training different ideas and seeing their 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 all of those trainings not necessarily going becoming obsolete overnight in a lot of ways. What would you say would be some ways to respond to that, or how would you say that would be something to think about like where should they evolve from there?
1: So drawing a parallel to another industry which got got automated or partially automated, farming, for example, we used to walk around um, and and do the fields ourselves. Then we introduced animals, uh, tractors, and um, now if you if you're a big farmer, you have autonomous machines doing your fields. Um, does this mean the jobs of farmers are disappearing? Not really. It's just uh, the jobs are evolving. And I think when we when we look at AI, it's not about losing jobs or not being able to utilize skills. I think it's actually bringing what AI can't bring. So AI is really good in, in doing whatever has happened before. Because sure. it knows, right? It has yep. billions of data sets. It knows what has happened before. So if that's I, how it's
0: it's designed to exact. That's the only way it
1: works. <laughs> yeah. So if I tell AI animated cheetah, it's gonna animate a cheetah. Not saying that it's possible right now, but um, let's let's say there's an AI which can animate. If I tell sure. it animated cheetah, it's like, oh cool! I've watched uh, a billion hours of cheetahs on YouTube and other uh, websites we haven't even heard about, and it's animating me a cheetah. Is this going to tell my story? likely not and this is where the artist comes in is right. telling the story is we're, we're taking away the time wasted uh, to set something up and giving the artist the artistic front back we're giving the artist the artistic side of things back so much time these days is spent by artists to publish shots to QC shots to set something up it's I mean um, lighting V-Ray, right? I want to mm. render a scene. The first thing I do is I set up the lights based on my, I do image-based lighting based on an HDRI, put in my lights uh, based on what has happened on set. Why am I doing this? Why can't an AI do that? Sure. It's all the information I need is in the image. You see on my face where my light is coming from. Yep. Why, why, do, I, why do I need all of that fuss? AI can do that. And then the job of the lighting artist becomes the storytelling what the DP and the best boy do on set, the storytelling. How do I make sure that the lines are being transported in the way that, that, that it works? How do I utilize light for that storytelling? Because this is something AI can't tell us. AI don't know. It's, and, and, and it's like, like virtual production. It's not a silver bullet. It's a tool. And um, it's a new tool in our belt. It becomes more and more readily available. Um, figure out how you can use it in your day-by-day.
0: Do you think there's it. a skill set that people should start learning? That would be a, a you know, if someone's gonna start getting into this, they should say, you know, if you start learning this, this is gonna be useful for you in, in the next few years.
1: I, I think I think um people should start looking at how to prompt AI, how to prompt AI to get results they're actually happy with and which are actually useful for them. Because it's sure. it's uh you see a lot of people are just like going to mid-journey uh Give me a painting of, uh, of a person with a fishbowl in front of a house. And AI right. just comes up with a house, a person with a fishbowl as a head. And you're like, right. yeah, yeah, that looks kind of okay. Um, right. But if you, if you start giving your prompts weight, if you start giving your prompts more, uh, more detail, um, you actually get more something out of it, what, what actually helps you to, to move your craft forward.
0: Do you think that, you know, obviously there's been a backlash recently about, you know, how how these, uh, how these tools have been uh, trained on things that, that people have been, you know, not necessarily with their consent of them using it. Do you think that there should be the tech industry should take note of that or should correct that? Or how would you think would be the best way to to, ju- to justify or rectify that that problem?
1: Chain of title is a very important thing in movies. So if your chain of title is broken, your movie is going to end up in the trash can right. or in a in a drawer somewhere. It's never going to be released. You need to be able to prove who owns what, when. The challenge with AI is it uses, I don't know, ChatGPT, I think it's 150 billion data sets. How right. am I supposed to prove where it's coming from? Uh, a wise man once said, uh, it doesn't matter where you took it from, it matters where you take it. <laughs> I want to say it was Steve Jobs. Because okay. um, the iPhone wasn't the first touchscreen oh, no. device.
0: Apple I think rarely I even,
1: makes firsts. No, they <laughs> never. Just, they do it <laughs> right. Yeah. That's that's usually their move. And it's, it's really the question of, where do you take it from? And there's as long as we don't really have an answer for that, especially image gener- uh, generators like Dali or, or Midjourney are very questionable in, in their use. Because the next thing is, um, it's I mean, you had multiple people uh, developing airplanes before the Wright Brothers actually did it. Mm-hmm. And who owns it? If I prompt something and you prompt something and we have similar images... The end user license agreement of a Mid Journey tells me I own it. The end user li- uh, license agreement tells you you own it. But then we compare our images, and they're actually very alike. And we're like, "Hey, I own this," and you're like, "No, I own this." There's there's a problem with it. That's right. that's why uh, specificity comes in. This is why um, there are a lot of lot of conversations around the legal sides of AI are currently being had. It's it's, it's a topic we need to figure out quite quickly because AI is becoming more and more a day-to-day thing.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this is something that sort of needs to be uh, considered. And there's some responsibility, I think, that we need to think about. Uh, at the same time, I find that it's almost impossible to stop this train. It is moving way too fast.
1: <laughs> yep, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so quick. I, at least, I mean, I'm, I'm now a subscriber of JetGPT. I'm actually paying money for JetGPT because right. it, 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 the way my brain works, I, I'm a very visual mm-hmm. thinker. Um, mm-hmm. Before I put something on paper, it, uh, it needs to be fully fleshed out in my head. Sure. And this is usually the time when I'm starting to get disinterested in it. Right. And that's bad because uh, when, when I have to write it down, you need to have the energy to write it down. But if you're sure. not interested in it anymore because you've solved the problem, then why would I write it down? And I'm actually utilizing ChatGPT to help me write it down, to get rid of the white page, to, to give me a starting point. So I'm, I have a couple of, of, of chats going with it where, where I have it in different mindsets, which sounds mm-hmm. is it more on the terrifying scale to have something on a mindset, which is a machine. Yeah, you want a tone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it knows what I'm talking about. And sure. Or I know that it knows what it's talking about. This is more my intent. And then I'm sure. utilizing this and giving, feeding it a couple of, of informations of my thoughts. And this helps me to, get, to basically get over the hump of the, of the empty page. And then I can, sure. can organically write about the thing I'm doing. And I think for that, it's really cool. And, um, and, and utilizing AI for me like this has been a game changer because it's, it's, it's really hard if your brain is wired like that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I do wanna you mentioned obviously you guys are getting into some interactive things. You look guys are looking at real time obviously in a lot of interesting ways. Um and content in general and the way it's being distributed has changed drastically. What have what are your thoughts on uh how content and uh and you know, storytelling will be happen? With Web three, and do you still think Web three is a viable way of looking at uh, how things are going to be shared in the future? Hmm. Hmm. So, It's, it's changed. It's, it's changed since last year. <laughs> uh, it's, it's. I mean,
1: Web three is on ultimately decentralized user-generated sure. content, yep. right? We have user-generated I mean,
0: content. I mean, DNET could be decentralized content that you create on Web3. Warner Brothers is making stuff on Web3. Oh,
1: everyone <laughs> is making stuff on Web3. Is it decentralized? Sure. Yeah. Um, Is it? Is it... It's... I don't know. It's... When we're... we're the thing is when 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 we're talking about web three we usually uh, tend to slip into metaverse yep um we we're definitely interested in being at the forefront of of helping to build the metaverse helping to build all the assets required to 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 step into the metaverse making sure that you have the best experience possible stepping into the metaverse um Metaverse is nothing new um I would argue we already have uh, Metaverses since Ultima Online, yeah. which is, I don't know, 2004, 2005, right. which was the... Ultima fo-
0: Online was actually 90... Uh, I remember Ultima Online oh, 90. from 96. <laughs> what? It was 96? Yeah. No. maybe Maybe 97. Oh, my gosh, 97, you're right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't oh know where God. I picked that number up. Huh? <laughs> Way
1: too old. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but yep. this is this is in my eyes the first, it's the first MMORPG who doesn't know it. Sure. And who didn't Google it now. Um, yep. And... it it was the first time you interact with other players and, and build a community and building Mm -hmm. a community. uh, If you, if you look up Lord British, if you look up uh, the, the candle ceremony in Ultima online, getting goosebumps, just talking about it. It's, it's truly, it's truly a community, which was built. And this is for me, metaverse. Metaverse is, is I'm meeting with people I care about, or I don't know. I've, Funny, funny story. So I've I've very actively played World of Warcraft. In my eyes, as well a Metaverse, because MMORPG yep. equals
0: Metaverse. They're not quite decentralized, but, not, but they're not they're decentralized. Metaverses. No,
1: <laughs> but user generated experiences. And sure. I some Absolutely. some of my my uh, closest friends I've I've learned I, I got to learn I got to know in World of Warcraft. I'm still sure. in contact with them twenty years later. Yep. After playing World of Warcraft, maybe not twenty. Oh, wait a second. Wow. No, actually 20 years. Wow. Um, we're not getting younger. Um, and, 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 and it's really great. And today, I, I, can, I can say it, I'm still playing Fortnite because right. I'm playing with friends. And playing yep. with friends is connecting with friends. And Fortnite actually is more of a, of a metaverse because you actually have the create, creator mode where you can create mm-hmm. user-based content, user-based experiences and sure. and and it's and it's and it's truly amazing to see that. and when you then see, for example, the sandbox, which is more of a web three experience to go 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 back to your original question, mm-hmm. is you you have this you have this blockchain based land which you can buy with a token called sand, mm-hmm. which you can get on the I think it's on the ethereum blockchain and um and with that, you can buy a piece of land, a plot of land in the virtual world. And you can build an experience however you like to do, and it's right. your experience. It's if someone goes into that experience and does something which costs sand in that world, it's your money. Right. It's 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 your experience. It's truly user generated. And we lo- when we look at storytelling like this, you can build stories with those experiences. You can build stories around. Around different metaverses, from Sandbox to Fortnite to Roblox to Minecraft to uh, Decentraland to Second Life. Yes, Second Life is still around. Yeah. Um, it's it's all of those can combine, and at some point, point, um, and it might be
0: interesting for you if you haven't done with uh, talking to Mark Pt. Um, oh yeah, I was, I, you <laughs> you're already going in a direction that I was going to go to, but keep going. <laughs> it's it's it's
1: the open metaverse. Uh, um, forum and standards around that is how do mm-hmm. i build an ecosystem where uh an item i buy on on roblox mm-hmm. translates into fortnite translates into sandbox translates yes. into i don't know what it's 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 the interoperability between all of those items this is where it's really interesting
0: do you okay so a couple things here because I'm, we're going to go a little long if that's okay do you have a little time that's fine <laughs> okay so uh so first of all I'm gonna tie this all together in some ways. We've talked about virtual production, about building virtual art departments and creating assets for these content ge- generation. Those content generation things are created in the game engine that ultimately can be distributed over the blockchain to uh uh to be able to use in a decentralized metaverse area. That distribution needs to happen in some kind of interoperability so you can take it from you can take your things from one world to the next. What do you think? needs to happen for that to really happen. <laughs> for you really to be able to say, here are all my digital goods and I can go anywhere I want with them. And it's all mine and part of my existence. So in the beginning of
1: our, our conversation, we're talking about use cases of virtual production. And one of the things mm-hmm. was metaverse. Because yes, mm-hmm. exactly, that's, that's a point, And that's a point uh, we should be very aware of right now. Interoperability right. at the moment is achieved by a hell of a lot of very talented people. So okay. I, have an, I have an asset which is created for a movie, which is cre- – let's say it's it's created for a movie, not for virtual okay. production. I sure. want it in virtual production. So I need to move it from, let's say, a V-Ray render, V-Ray shaded version into something I can use in Unreal Engine 5 or your, it's your tool of choice
0: – Sure, unreal. We have uh, that ability, but keep going. I, I know. <laughs> yeah,
1: and and then I have this photoreal asset in my in my virtual world. Virtual uh-huh. production stages are usually not run by consumer electronics, right. so whatever I have on the stage is likely not going to run your PlayStation Five or four or your yep. Steam Deck or whatever. So I I port this I. I decimate uh, the amount of polygons, texture quality, blah, 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 your UDIMs to reduce the the amount of textures you have um, to make as small package as possible. This is what I feed into the game engine. But if I'm then saying, okay, uh, we're now at this point, I have it in a photoreal game. But I want to get it in the metaverse, so I go to Sandbox. Sandbox is voxelized. It's a voxelized world. So a photorealistic version of... We should have this decided what object we're going to take in the beginning. Let's, take a, let's say a Ca- flower. A flower, okay. A, a flower. It's, a flower has intricate detail sure. in, in itself. If I move this into Sandbox, it's likely going to be, I don't know, nine voxels and right. uh, one voxel going stem. going linear down as a stem mm-hmm. and some sort of a of a minimal texture to get an idea right. of a flower. But this needs an artist to create that. Right. And this is where I think we can we can utilize lookbooks, we, we can utilize we can utilize processes to to find a way up. it's basically like a dictionary we have to figure out a dictionary between one world to another world and i think this is this is what we're going to need to build to be ready for what's to come
0: but do you think we could do that with a gan hmm I mean, we were already doing that. We're taking this picture and making it look like a Gauguin. We can say take this and just make it work for Minecraft or whatever, you know.
1: Yes, but it's it's a picture. It's two D, so it needs to yes. be three D. And three uh, D AI, yeah, it's it's we we we're getting there. Yeah. Um. But there's there's a lot of of things which need to happen to to make it actually work because um, they they're always. How to uh, specifications attached to each of those engines and worlds, because you yep. need to make sure it's true to the world. And true to the world is something which is very tricky because it's a very human uh, process, it's a very subjective process. And especially right. if it's a new world, AI might not have the knowledge of translating it into that world.
0: Right. That's true. Well, uh, I think it's fascinating. I think that, you know, talking to people like, like you have always sort of made me think, it's like, well, what's going to happen next? Because you do have, one of the things I think that's uh, is cool about a job like yours is that you do have to think about all those different things and how it's going to affect things, especially when you're thinking about strategy. Um, and, so and, you know, digital assets are going to become a big, it sounds, sounds like a boring thing, but it's going to become huge.
1: <laughs> oh, we haven't even started talking about digital twins.
0: Digital Twins is another one, yeah. Tell me your take on Digital Twins. What are, what are some of the things that interest you there?
1: Oh, they're, they're utterly intriguing because it, it, it takes what we've done for, I don't know, last 50, wait, when was 50 years? 70 years by now, right? No, we, we started visual effects in the 60s, 70s, something. So 70, 70, 80, no, wait, 70, oh, wow, 70 years um, of digital asset creation, but it takes it into mm-hmm. a scientific world. Mm-hmm. So let's say I have an, I don't know I have, a, I have a little little moon on my desk. Yeah. Yep. Um, creating a three D asset of that it's not the hardest thing in the world. Nope. Creating a digital twin of that is actually not very is, is actually quite it's not as trivial as creating an asset of it because a digital twin means it has the same material qualities and it has has the same geometry. Mm. So. I need to figure out a scientific process of creating a digital asset. And a scientific process of that is something we have in the creative world not ever really done before. Uh, we have a good understanding about lighting and how lighting and materials work. So that's amazing through yep. uh, the works of, of Paul de Vevek, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing um, to your work mm-hmm. um, to, to get a, an object to actually look the way it's supposed to look like. Right. But a, a digital twin gives us opportunities. A digital twin, a, gives us the opportunity to teach AIs on how objects look like. Um, a digital twin gives us the opportunity. I mean, just GTC is happening. I think in two weeks. And GTC is happening. GTC
0: like the the the, 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 the Nvidia, Nvidia one. Right? Yes. That is like in one week. <laughs> it's in, It's already in one week. Oh my! Gosh. I think so. It's coming very soon.
1: Yeah, um, but it's it's what. Just look at the keynote from the GTC from 2022. Is right. what what they use digital twins for at, in point of sales? What they use mm-hmm. digital twins for in um, in logistics centers? In uh, research around uh, cell phone reception and antenna placement in, in urban structures, it's all digital twins. Yeah, it's all connecting with what we're doing. And again, this is where RTC and RTS becomes really, really interesting because it's combining all of those sectors together.
0: I found digital twins to be fascinating in hospitals uh, because in hospitals, a lot of times th- I was seeing some some uh, architecture construction guys that were talking about um, how they're using digital twins of the hospital and its functionality, obviously, sort of matching what's happening in the physical world which is why it's called a twin. And then they would use AR glasses to walk around the hospital to point out the different maintenances that needs to be used for fixing a pipe, et cetera. Instead of saying, oh, you need to, you just walk around with glasses like, oh yeah, I got to fix that. Okay, boom. And you're just looking at it through the wall. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: I, I remember playing with something like this on the cruise ship. Um, we did a, uh, I did a prototype for, for a cruise ship. Ages ago, where we used, I think, I want to say it was the first time AR kit became available on, on iPhone. Okay. Some, something around that time, iPhone 3 or iPhone 4. Um, it was the idea to look behind the closed doors in a cruise ship to see, right. hey, what does the machine room look like? What does the bridge look like? And whatsoever, because you're not allowed to yeah. go there. But utilizing this in a hospital is utterly clever.
0: Well, you have to do so much maintenance, and uh-huh. it's so critical. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I haven't thought about that. And the cool thing is, it's every visual artist, every digital artist can start doing that. Sure. Yeah. In theory, That's but true. please don't. Um, we still need a lot of people in visual effects, animation, and games. Yep. Um, so uh, you you can do hospital stuff. Um, we can do hospital stuff as well. <laughs> Awesome.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation with Philip. I'm really excited to see you again uh, at the next uh, RTS meeting. Hopefully I'll be going to uh, uh, the the economic summit as well. Will you be at FMX? I might go to FMX as well. I'm not sure.
1: I will likely not be able to make it to this year's FMX, unfortunately. You're in Montreal now, is that correct? Correct. I'm based in Montreal, but I'm traveling a lot and – so I'm I'm not entirely sure if I will be in Germany at that time, even though this is where I'm from.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully, if I don't see you there, I'll hopefully I will see you at the economic summit in May. But would love that. It's wonderful talking to you, Philip. Thank you so much for your insight in this. In this, uh, you know, learning so much about your perspective on the industry is very important. I'm sure very, all, all my audience will be super excited to hear about it. So thanks again.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation.